0: You're listening to Bella Figura, the tradition of living beautifully. I'm your host, Dolores Alfieri Taranto. In this show, we explore Bella Figura, the art of beautifying all facets of your life with a focus on heritage as a means to do so. In each episode, I talk to designers, writers, fashion bloggers, healers, and others from various ethnic backgrounds about what I call the holy, the elemental, and the majesty, their culture, spiritual style, its principal values, and their lineage and family stories, all in a straight talk manner with minimal woo-woo. Join me in spiritual conversations for the rest of us. Your heritage is your superpower. Learn how to wield it. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Bella Figura, the tradition of living beautifully. Unfortunately, uh, summer is coming to an end. It's on its way. I feel like the summer just flew by. Those of you who are on my mailing list, I did send an email out last night. And those of you who are not, you, you can sign up and and join it at bellafiguetapodcast dot com. Anyhow, I did mention how I, I took a little hiatus from publishing episodes and even from social media, and just tried to enjoy what was left of summer, and be in nature, and be with my family, and kind of just touch and stay close to the things that to me are always healing and just kind of ground me and connect me needed to unplug a little bit. It has been a wild year for everybody and the hits just keep on coming. So I hope you're all, you know, enjoying what's left of summer and kind of finding your own space to be at peace and as calm as you can be and sane and grounded so, this episode here with my lovely guest, Jakira Diaz, a writer who just came out with her first book called Ordinary Girls. This episode is going to explore a little of the rougher parts of heritage and family stories. And as you'll hear here, Jakira explains that and writes about in her book, Ordinary Girls, that many of her painful memories or painful experiences do in essence stem from her family stories and her heritage her culture in the sense of who she was born to where she was born and the stories and the people and experiences that she was born into so Jakira was born into a half white half black family in Puerto Rico and she grew up on the poorest side of town so it's interesting. It was interesting for me to explore this part of heritage because I do think I definitely try to touch on the fact that not everything we get from our culture and our roots, we should keep. And I was really excited to be able to explore this more in depth with a guest. But of course, there's always gold within the rocks. And Jakira does explain how she continues to draw power and inspiration from her culture, even even though there, you know, were many, many rough spots. So this was recorded before this summer, many months ago. And on top of it, because as I mentioned, I took a hiatus, it was recorded just a little bit even longer ago. (laughs) And it was recorded before this summer when phrases like anti-racist were not yet dominating social media and books like how to be an anti-racist, which Shakira mentions in this episode were not yet on the bestseller list. So this was just an organic regular old conversation between two people that happened before. George Floyd's death and before the conversation on racism and anti-racism really just exploded and began to dominate the national conversation. Just wanted to flag that. If you have not yet left A review on iTunes, please take a minute to do so. It definitely helps to spread the word about the podcast and helps to get the podcast highlighted on iTunes so that more people will listen to it and also helps me to continue to get these great guests that I have been speaking with. Please also subscribe to the show. You just click the subscribe button at the top of the page on iTunes. And please also find me on Instagram. You can just search Dolores Alfieri and I pop up as Dolores underscore Alfieri underscore Taranto. Okay, let's dive into this episode with Jakira, and I'll catch you on the other side. Jakira, welcome to Bella Figura. Uh, Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I was telling you before we just hit record, uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. There are a lot of conversations, conversation topics that I feel like can be explored with you in particular, more so than I have, I feel like so far with any other guests. And it's just probably some of the things that you have dealt with in your life and so on. So I think this is going to be a great kind of expanding conversation for a lot of listeners.
1: Oh, thank you. I hope so. I'm happy to talk about anything really having to do with Ordinary Girls, about Puerto Rican culture, my experience with Puerto Rican culture, family. I mean, the book is about so many different things.
0: I think that's true. And you were saying how you've heard from so many readers that certain aspects in particular resonate with them. So, you know, it's very hard to say, you know, I've had your life, right? Because of all the different right, the different things and the circumstances that are particular to you. But it's a story about women. It's a story about growing up. So it's a story about, in a lot of ways, abuse and violence. And many of us across cultural backgrounds have experienced these things.
1: Yeah. One of the things, like I mentioned before, that has happened, which has been kind of overwhelming is to hear from readers to hear from people who have read the book and to hear them say your story resonated with me even though I'm from a completely different background I also had a mother with mental illness or I also dealt with sexual violence or something like there's usually like one thing that resonates with a reader but even people have who have a completely different background who haven't had any of those experiences have reached out to say So much of this felt familiar, even if it was just like an aspect of Miami in the 80s and 90s or an aspect of Puerto Rico during that same time period. I think one of the things that readers are looking for is like honesty. Mm -hmm. And it's like about your life in a way that feels like I don't have shame about this anymore. I can just talk about this in a way that's honest and meaningful. And I hope that's what readers are connecting with.
0: Sure, because a lot of the subjects in the book are th- abuse, suicide, are things we don't really talk about too often. I mean, we talk about them more now than we probably yeah. did fifty, sixty years ago, but they're still very dark, and yeah. you know, stay in the dark sometimes.
1: Yeah, it's definitely felt that way for me when when I s- started writing this book. One of the things I I kept that I struggled with, that I kept returning to was, am I even allowed to talk about this? Can I even say this in a book? Who is that serving? Like, if I'm having, if I'm writing about this, who is that serving at all? Is it serving me as a writer? And I kept having to remind myself about women and girls who possibly lived a similar life, who weren't allowed to talk about these things. Certainly I wasn't. We didn't talk about sex or sexuality. In my home, we didn't talk about sexual violence. We didn't talk about like some of these things we were taught we should just be ashamed of, yeah. and that it was a burden to to keep secret.
0: Yeah, I um, think that that's fairly probably fairly common in a lot of. Did you grow up Catholic? I mean, yeah, Puerto Rico is a yeah. heavily yes. As an Italian American myself, of course, in Catholic faith big part of our lives. I I think that that's a very Common thing in in our in our types of households.
1: Yeah, I grew up Catholic. My grandmother was very devout. My uncle, my father's brother, is a Catholic priest. Mm. So there was always this aspect of shame for me of feeling like I should be hiding all of these things. That I mean, I'm queer. I'm actually I'm gay, and I was afraid. I lived my entire life. I lived closeted. Couldn't come out to my family felt like there was something wrong with me, felt like I needed to hide it. And in my early 20s, I was able to come out to my friends and they were very supportive. So I was out to my friends. I was out professionally, but I couldn't be out with my family. And then finally I came out to my father first, my brother, my sister, and they were fine with it. My grandmother died before I came out, but my sister who is also queer came out to my grandmother years ago and my grandmother's reaction was so loving she was like Mm. fine I love you I just want you to know that I love you no matter what and I support you I just want you to be happy and so I know that she would have supported me but there there's certainly an entire like an entire group of my family members that I don't know that I could ever come out to um in Puerto Rico who are devout Catholics Including my own. Right.
0: It's great to remind people that even even some Catholics can be loving, which is <laughs> which is really the which is really the basis and the whole point, right? You're it's what you're supposed to be. And and there's all kinds of people in all kinds of in all kinds of realms, but for sure in my house we didn't talk about those things either, except that in terms of sexuality, you know, I wasn't supposed to have any until I got married.
1: I mean Yeah.
0: That was <laughs> That was really, that's all I remember ever kind of being taught, which gave me my own issues in, in my own way that I <laughs> I have to work through, you know, like all of us. So we just jumped in talking with, I, which I absolutely love. But before we <laughs> go any further, let's rewind a little bit. I mean, the listeners know about you from, from the introduction, but just tell us a little bit more. You've mentioned Puerto Rico, et cetera, but about your upbringing and the people that you mm-hmm. come from.
1: Well, I was born in Puerto Rico. My father is Puerto Rican. He's black Puerto Rican. My mother was born in New York. Her family is white Puerto Rican. And so I was raised in this very mixed family. Most most of my all of my mother's family is white. All of my father's family is black. And I was raised mostly by my black grandmother and the book covers the early years in Puerto Rico where we lived in government housing projects that were that we called El Caserío and we lived I mean we came from poverty my father at the time there were no jobs in Puerto Rico in in that area so it was very difficult for my father to find a job my mother worked in a factory which is where she could find a job and my father had been in college and then had to Leave school to try to support his family. It was very hard for us for a very long time. And then eventually he started selling drugs to try to make money and was able to get some money together and get us out of El Caserillo and opened a liquor store and then eventually got us out of Puerto Rico. He was trying to, you know, make a living and eventually did start working legitimate jobs, which he was able to find once we got to Miami. And so that the first part of the book covers those years that we spent in Puerto Rico which were very difficult for us but at, at the time I mean as I was living it I didn't realize how poor we were we didn't have any clue we just knew we lived in a community that we loved and we had our family and el caserío felt very much like I mean you know how they say it takes a village yeah. to raise a child it felt very much like we were part of this Community that was like a village. We had all the kids were always we were always playing outside. We always had kids' mothers or grandmothers watching out for you know the group of us. My grandmother was certainly one of them, and it felt like we were just living a very normal life. And then occasionally there would be like raids. The cops would come in and raid raid places for drugs and guns, and they would arrest people. And it's it was in those moments that that it felt like something was off something was not Mm. and I didn't I didn't really think about this very much until I was older when I realized how much violence had found its way into our childhood games Mm -hmm. how much violence thought was part of our everyday lives and how we thought that was normal and then after we left El Caserio, and I started going to school in a different public school and all the kids kind of shunned me or were afraid of me and I had no idea why and they they, I was kind of an outcast in a school when all I all I did was I loved to read. So I spent a lot of time by myself and had no friends and then realized that they didn't like me because I was from El Caserío. And so I was this outsider girl. So that's part of it. There's also this part of my family that is, that my father was a person who loved poetry, who loved literature, who loved to read. And so because he loved to read, I loved to read. I saw him reading. He was always, always had his face in a book. And so I wanted to be just like my dad. And one of my very early memories, which is something that I write about in the book, was when my father took me to the funeral of a poet, Puerto Rican poet, Juan Antonio Correjer. And I saw like so many people showed up to his funeral and I saw how much my father how much this man meant to my father and how much his poetry had shaped people and, and, you know, affected their lives that I thought it was my first moment realizing how important writing could be and how mm. important poetry. I thought poet, poets were like superheroes who could change the world. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <And> <laughs> I guess they, I mean, they are in some way, but yeah, I guess it's, it's an adorable yeah. thought for a young girl to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I thought, it was like my first, one of my first moments of awareness of what I wanted to be. And I wanted to write books, right? Also, because my father spent so much time with books, I thought there was some magic there and it was something that I wanted. And so the very first books I read were my father's books or tried to read because I didn't really understand them at the time. But my father was a man who loved books and gave me books. And so we always had books around the house. And then even as a little girl, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. That was always something I knew.
0: Right, right. Your father, as a character in and of himself, if you if you would have made him up, he'd be like a terrific fictional character you know and the, <laughs> the fact that he's not made up is even more beautiful but this man who's obviously trying to take care of his family and struggling but then is uh, educated and also a uh, poet and a reader you know obviously you he's still alive correct
1: yes yes yeah, so
0: obviously you're very fond of him and uh, he was a huge role model in your life obviously yeah, yeah i mean yeah.
1: definitely he was he was flawed and is flawed sure. you know, like all of or- are but I adored him. I wanted I wanted to be just like him. He's still a reader. He still loves poetry and reading, literature. He loves books. He also loves art and music and he paints. But he was also very difficult. Like he was a very difficult person to have as a father when I was growing up because in my teenage years I needed so much that he couldn't give me. Right. He he spent a lot of. He was very withdrawn, and he was very he was absent for most of my teen years. He worked a lot. He worked seven days a week, sometimes two jobs, sometimes three. And because he spent so much time working, he also, in a lot of ways, used that as a crutch, mm. like why he couldn't be around. But mm. um, it was always because my mother suffered from mental illness. It was always my grandmother, my abuela, who took care of us and who was the one who helped with homework or who cooked for us or made sure that we were home and and she was the one who took responsibility for the kids and my father just worked. And so it was very difficult to have a relationship with him or to know him. I didn't feel like I knew him until mm-hmm. I was a grown woman. I we didn't have real conversations until I was a grown woman. And part of what happened in my teen years was that I rebelled against against my father, but I was also in a way trying to be seen and i was very very angry i had so much anger and so i started fighting in school and fighting outside of school and i had fight after fight after fight with with girls and some boys also but i kept getting arrested this is something that's also in the book is that i kept getting arrested for having fights i kept getting suspended from school i was completely lost and a lot of that had to do with feeling like my parents weren't around. So one of the one of the more compelling
0: aspects of your life that I imagine you correct me if I'm wrong you probably still deal with is that your father was Black Puerto Rican, your mother white. So you really have this this Latina aspect to white aspect and a Black aspect to your life. And you write about being too light skinned, if I may, Um, these are not your words, they're mine, my interpretation, too light skinned to be seen as black, but Mm -hmm. too brown to be seen as white. Mm -hmm. And so that you're almost living in this kind of nether space of identity. If you want to talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that, I'll jump in with some thoughts that I have actually (laughs) from other Um, people's experiences that, you know, in my own life and other people that I've spoken to, I think this is, a very interesting topic when it comes to ethnicity, and mm-hmm. whether or not we feel we belong, and you know mm-hmm. how blank are you? The blank being insert your culture there.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so it was it was something that that was always present in my life, right? Because from the outside looking in, whoever whoever saw our family when we were with my abuela and my father, my siblings, and I. I always thought that we were just a family, like lots of Puerto Rican families have family members that are dark skinned, light skinned, and we come in every shade. But my grandmother was always adamant that we understood that we were a black family. She always wanted us to know this. And in part because she grew up during a time when there was a lot of racism and colorism in Puerto Rico. And she knew also, that if these had been times of slavery that our family would have been enslaved no matter how we looked to the world and that there were there were ways that the world was going to try to label us no matter what and she wanted us to understand who we were rather than letting the world label us and so she wanted like she always called us mi negrita mi negrito that was her way like as terms of endearment that was her right. way of of kind of reminding us that you're black and I love you Mm -hmm. not you're black and I love you in spite of it but you're black and I love you and for my father my father was is a light-skinned black man and then everyone else in my grandmother's family is very dark-skinned so in my in my family like with my cousins sometimes people don't even believe that we're related something that happened to us when we were growing up is that when people saw me with my abuela they didn't believe we were related and they assumed she was my nanny at the time that made me so angry like it just made me so angry in part because like they it was like they were making this conscious effort to separate us to say that you're different you can't possibly be related but also because I felt like they didn't see me like that I had to keep trying to explain to people who I was. Eventually I stopped doing that because that, you know, takes a toll on you. But something else, another aspect is that my my mother's family, my white grandmother was very, very racist. She, when my mother fell in love with and married my father, that was like my my grandmother's worst nightmare Mm -hmm. that she had fallen in love with a black man. And she never hid her racism from us. He made it very clear that we didn't look like her family. And my brother my brother did because he's light-skinned, has blue-green eyes, very light hair. And so he, to her, looked white. And so she claimed him and was very proud mm-hmm. that he was her grandson. She, she
0: treated him differently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Okay.
1: She has other grandchildren. My mom's sister also married a black man, also has brown children. And so she treated all of us like... We were not part of her white family. She was very, very abusive in different ways, verbally, physically, withholding food. Like, you name it, she did it. And in part, I felt like like she was this way with everyone. But But then I realized that no, like she made it clear that she had a problem with my father's black family and with us because we were part of that family. And she blames my father for everything that went wrong in our lives. So much so that that when she died, I wasn't even sure if I was grieving or if it was okay to feel grief. My cousins and I, and my sister and I often joked that we wouldn't feel anything when she died, which of course didn't happen. She died and I definitely yeah. felt pain and everything came back up. But part of my experience growing up was trying to somehow navigate that, trying to navigate This idea that people in my own family hated me, (laughs) that people that I was related to were racist and that I would never have the feeling of being complete because part of what I needed was for all these people in my life to acknowledge me and love me and accept me for who I was. And this is not, I mean, this is not just my experience. A lot of people, a lot of Puerto Rican people I know have either one or two people in their family that are that are going through the same thing or that have gone through something similar. And something that happens in Puerto Rico is that the conversation about race changes. It kind of gets glossed over. And everyone talks about how Puerto Ricans are a mix of Spaniards, Tainos, and Africans, and how we're all a mix of these three races. And for some of us, that's not the case. Some of us are just Black. Some of us are just white. Mm. Some of us are Black and Indigenous. Some of us are Asian. Some of, like we, yeah. The conversation about race hasn't really been able to move. It's, it's, I feel like it's, it's taken a very long time. There hasn't been a lot of progress because of this myth that every Puerto Rican is a mix of three races, which is not necessarily true. Mm.
0: Sorry. I went off. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I was. I followed all that. I think this is exactly the kind of thing that it's good for us all to talk about. It's so. This is the, not in comparison because, of course, at this point as Italian Americans, we are just considered white, which has its own implications, and and is something I talk about a lot in the show, and I think something that is used also as a way to gloss over our our own history and kind of these days just kind of brush us aside, which is probably, you know, a whole other conversation. But in for me, you know, growing up, I'm, as you can see, I'm blonde haired, I'm blue eyed, I have light skin. So for me, it was a lot of you're Italian, you don't look Italian. Yeah, right. So I'm one of four, my siblings are all they, "Quote unquote," look Italian. They have uh, dark olive skin, dark eyes, dark hair. I have a good friend of mine, uh, Rosella Rago, who same thing. She's closer to my age than my siblings, but grew up in Brooklyn and very Italian looking. And she always says, "I was I was too Italian for America, but then she felt too American for Italians." Mm. Uh, and I, you know, and I felt the same way. And I think as I get older, I realize that in part. I was actually, because of my shading, I was almost too American. So I I didn't really feel that. But what I did feel was in my home life and also my, my larger community, which was all Southern Italian, everyone we, we grew up around, uh, extended family, etc. That I think I just said as a defense mechanism, like, okay, well, then I'm American. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. just easier than to try to go around defending myself and, and trying to feel like I, I belonged. Yeah. So I, again, I know there's, you know, there's obviously different implications. As you said, of course, your abuela said, was letting you know that had it been slavery times, you would have, your family would have been slaves. That's a very, a different indicator. But I, I just wonder in general, if you've heard from people of other ethnicities, you know, not just Puerto Rican kind of struggling with that, that same issue. Or having experienced yeah.
1: it. Yeah, I have. So I, I think this is one of, the, one of the things that people who are Black but have a white parent mm. often feel like they can only really talk about it now after other people are talking about this. And had to live basically trying to negotiate certain aspects of their identity for most of their lives. I do have a friend, we talk about this all the time, who's Black whose mother is white and they were the only his his father is black his mother is white and they were the only black family where they lived in kentucky Mm. and going to school growing up people always wanted to label him like other classmates kids in his class kids on the bus wanted to label him and didn't know that he was black and called him mexican Mm. called him eastern like called him like wanted to figure out what he was in a lot of ways that has to do with people trying to measure your proximity to whiteness because Mm. people whiteness translates as power in America. And so trying to measure your proximity to whiteness is really trying to figure out how they should be treating you. And Mm. one of the things that I feel we need to be talking about is not just race, but power, right? Like who has power in America? because there's there's certain things in this country that make you like either more likely to have power or less likely to have power like if you're white but you're gay if you're white and upper class compared to a person who is white and working class right if you're transgender in the US you lose a certain amount of power because people take that as Kind of like a cue of how they can treat you and how comparing themselves to you right like how much power they have over you i've had a lot of conversations with people who are who are either biracial either black and white or from other cultures or just multiracial, or who have parents from different countries who are immigrants and it usually the the thing that we all have in common is that, is that there's always been a sort of negotiation of trying to figure out where you fit or always knowing where you fit but having to kind of remind people about who you are or trying to you know make people see you and there's usually a point when you have a recognition that you're not going to be doing that anymore that it's you know it's not your problem mm. to educate people about who you are it's not your job to educate people that that's, that's someone else's problem, because what they're trying to do is measure your proximity to whiteness. And in a lot of ways, it's not just about figuring out how they should treat you, but figuring out how much they can oppress you. One of the strangest feelings for me is always when I leave the US, being Latina, being Puerto Rican, being black, being biracial, when I leave the US and I travel somewhere else in the world where, they, where people see, they perceive race differently, mm how who I am kind of shifts a little bit like being who I am looking this way and spending a month in the Middle East, like in Qatar, a lot of people asked me where I was from, but I think they were also trying to figure out if I was from there or if I was Muslim or like they were trying to figure out who I was and for very different reasons than in the U.S. I think there, they wanted to see like what we had in common culturally. Like, Can we have conversations? It was more about, there are some people here from all over the world and they were truly interested. In the U.S., the co- when I'm asked about my background, it's never really, where are you from? They ask, what are you? Mm. <laughs> Which is something that always feels so violent to me, of that way of asking someone where they're from. Or if I say, I'm from Miami, and they're like, "Mm, where are you really from? (laughs) That's not what I meant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, right. This idea that you reach a point where you feel like it's not your job to tell people your story, I can understand personally, I can't understand it in terms of where you're coming from, of course. But in that case, then whose responsibility is it? Is it anybody's responsibility? Hmm. Or let me phrase it another way, in some ways I feel like what you're doing, I don't think you're defending yourself, but you are explaining and you're enlightening. And you know what I mean? So that's been a saying or a thing I've heard often, and then that's always what pops into my head. Well then well then what happens? You know, it's not your job to tell me. Is it my job to learn about everybody's experiences? Like that's a lot to ask of me. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So just
1: just your thoughts um, on that. So, so one of the things that I think about a lot is how the place I came from is no longer feels like home. For example, El Caserío, which is a place that when I was growing up was marginalized and where people didn't have a lot of opportunity that we had to go out and search for opportunity and Because of educational inequality, we didn't have access to the same level of education as people who went to school outside of El Caserio. But I think a lot about how, even though that place to me, in my mind, feels very much like home, going back today, I'm reminded that it's not home, that I no longer really belong there, that I've had access to all of these things, like education, for example, that I've had access to a graduate degree, the world, the publishing world, fellowships, and so I have a lot of privilege. And so for me to go back to El Caserillo and try to make it feel like home is it's not genuine. Mm-hmm. I can still feel like home in my heart. I still have a lot of love for the place and the people who live there. But I've also had access to all of these things that make me that have been have made the world easier for me. And so for me I feel like it's my responsibility to educate myself about how what I do, how I walk in the world now is something I've had access to that the people I love haven't had access to. And so for me, who I educate and who I perform like emotional labor for is really, it's for people like who I'm writing for and who I'm writing about. This is the same group of people. I'm writing stories about people that I love, but I'm also writing for them. And so I feel like, it's I kind of have a sense of responsibility to educate myself about how what I'm doing and how I'm performing in the world, whether or not that's being oppressive toward that group of people. Mm. I also feel like I have a responsibility to because I benefit from my light skin privilege. I do. I've gotten opportunities, and, and in a lot of ways, I feel like sometimes I've gotten opportunities because people don't know that I'm black and. I was made very aware of this right after the Trump election that had I had people known that I was black that maybe they would have seen me differently that was kind of a shock to me but I feel like I have a a responsibility to ensure that people have access to the same things I've had access to to the same fellowships to the same opportunities and so I try however that makes sense for me I try to make sure that People who haven't had access to the spaces I've had access to do somehow get access to them. One way that I did this was when I was working at the Canyon Review, which is a literary magazine, trying to ensure that we were reading as widely and diversely as possible. Trying to ensure that people who don't normally get published in the magazine knew that we we had a call for submissions out. I felt like it was my responsibility to try to do things that someone in my position wouldn't normally do and there are a lot of people who are doing this work right there are a lot of people who are going out and educating themselves and educating other people and trying to reach out and trying to make the spaces that they occupy more equitable and more inclusive and diverse it's not just something that i do i feel like a lot of people in the literary world are doing this work but there's also something else and it's that most of the people who control publishing most of the gatekeepers most of the people who make decisions about either who gets paid and how much they get paid or who gets published are people who are do tend to be white and upper middle class and who tend to get a lot of the opportunities or most of the opportunities and so it becomes their responsibility to ensure that they're educating themselves about other people right but it's also kind of impossible to do all of this work because then you would stop doing it. So I think my my thinking about it is that being a person who is anti-racist or who is thinking about equity, it's like work that you do every day and Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be necessarily all you do. But it's like if you do a little bit every day, eventually you come to a point when you start thinking about this as just part of your everyday. Like, if you if you make it a point to, say, read journalists who are people of color or to read a story in a newspaper that's about queer people, just, like, do a little something every day to try to educate yourself. Eventually, you realize that you've reached a place where you have an abundance of knowledge. Mm, that's um, pretty good advice. Yeah. If one thing... I don't know if you've read Ibram Kendi's um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, but one of the things that I learned from that book is that racism exists, right? Some of us benefit from it. Some of us don't. Because of my proximity, I'll give you myself as, as an example, because of my proximity to whiteness, even though I'm Latina, even though I'm Black, if I'm in a place like Puerto Rico, where in a community where the cops are surveilling Black neighborhoods, if those police officers see me and they don't see me as black, then they're less likely to shoot me, <laughs> Um, statistically. And so I benefit from my proximity to whiteness, whether I like it or not, even though I have no control over that. So it is my responsibility to understand this, this very basic thing. And so because I benefit from my proximity to whiteness, then I have to really make a decision whether I am in a racist world, I'm either racist or I'm anti-racist and anti-racism work is really starts with educating yourself a little bit every day is how you start it doesn't have to be overwhelming it can just be a little bit every day
0: I have taken an hour of your time I'm wondering if I can just take a few more minutes sure I I have like way more stuff to ask I always like over prepare which I think is is better than under preparing but then I always feel like I have another episode so maybe you can come back down the road, and we'll talk about totally different things, or you know maybe okay. <laughs> you know, your second book. but um one thing i I really did want to talk to you about because I think you are in the unique position among many of the guests that I've had for this question i I tend to talk about using your heritage to beautify your life in in three kind of buckets uh, the holy, the elemental, and the majesty. And the elemental is your culture's you know its principal values, the things that we are we are taught. And we take from our culture as the things we should value most. And mm-hmm. the the majesty is your lineage and family stories. Now, I talk a lot about how research has showed that children who know their family stories are, they grow up to be more confident. Even as mm-hmm. children, they have more emotional confidence. And you, know, you draw a line and that's, and you know, it points to the fact that the more we know about who we are and where we come from, the the better foundation we have beneath us. I also like to say to people listen there's some things our cultures give us that we have to let go of right because they don't they don't work for us they hurt us and they're they are they're not things that we should continue in your case your family stories are you know they're not they're not always pretty and as you mentioned at the start there's a lot of heartbreak and violence and uh, abuse and neglect in them do you in that case do you and have you felt that you're still able to draw strength from those stories in in terms of like empowerment and, and beautifying your life? And at the same time, are there values from your, your ancestral culture that you can still draw on for strength?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. That's of such course. a great question. Mm-hmm. My abuela, my grandmother, passed down stories to us One thing that I, that I learned from her about being Puerto Rican and what that means is that there's always like resilience is one of the things that, that has been constant, consistent through, for generations, right? And that, that's in a lot of ways fueled by our love of family and our, respect for, you know, respecting our elders and our ancestors and respecting our stories, our history and knowing it and passing it down, you know, in family. But also one of the things that that I've always like clung to and one of the reasons why I think Puerto Rican people tend to be so proud of their heritage is that we are joyful and we celebrate a lot. Um, There's always joy in celebration and a love of family and embracing people. One of the things that Puerto Ricans love to say is that you're Puerto Rican no matter where in the world you're born. Um, There's a poem (laughs) that's called Puerto Rico en la Luna, which means Puerto Rican on the moon. And (laughs) the basic premise is that you would be Puerto Rican whether you were born here or if you were born on the moon. Um, And that's the the found that's kind of the foundation of what puerto ricanness means to me which is that no matter what you can always go back and you'll always have a home because whether or not if even if you don't have a home like there's always a sense of family and community and togetherness in this culture and that that will see you through which is why to me going back to puerto rico again and again feels necessary i feel like even though I don't have a permanent home there, I have to go back. I always have to go back. So there's something about the island, the people and family that calls me back. Mm. And that's feeling like I have an anchor in the world. Feeling like I have a family and a community and joy. Right when I go back there, for me, that's that's what I need to like remember. That's what I have to think about. That's something that is sustains me. The aspects of machismo and this hyper toxic masculinity that's something I can live without <laughs> and I try <laughs> <laughs> it's some um, you know i I try to kind of try to dismantle it as much as I possibly can. It's something that I still struggle with in my own family. a lot of us struggle with that in our families and I mean I'm also Catholic, my partner I'm gay and my partner is gay, my partner's also Catholic. Hmm. We have a sense of that there's community in Catholicism but that there there are also things that we can live without.
0: Absolutely.
1: And that we just don't embrace like we can be Catholic and and not be homophobic. Right. And just take the message of love and community. And ritual and the things that are beautiful about Catholicism and leave leave the rest. Um, I love that.
0: I love that. I love that. And I think it's so important. I'm so happy that you just said all that. Those were just beautiful examples of embracing the elementals and then the things that we need to let go of. But I, it breaks my heart in a way that so many people, especially when it comes to Catholicism, have just shunned it and turned away from it. And I get it in some ways. Like I get it. How can I still be part of that when all these things have happened but i i think there is a way and i i i see myself as one of those people i think i've said before and i'll say it again i'm i'm probably not the pope's favorite catholic and i think that the sins of the church are many but yeah. you know it's still my religion it's still what i was given and i think it's beautiful and i and i think that people like you and i and your partner like it's our job almost to clean it up and like brush it off and you know like show its real beauty
1: yeah i agree and i mean when you think about historically what catholicism historically it's not what it was a hundred years ago and i think my view so in order for me to remain a catholic i have to keep you know having faith and believing that it will get better right that it can only get better that we that we have to be realistic about the parts of Catholicism, the aspects of Catholicism that are harmful, and embrace those that are not. Embrace those that are joyful and that that are the things that we want in our lives.
0: That's beautiful. And and so in in your like again another example of how you know you're taking that Catholicism from your heritage, and it's still a part of your life where you you know you really could have said, well, that mindset hurt me in so many ways. I'm done with it. I think it serves us. And everyone has to do what feels right for them. I just, with this show, I like to just kind of reoffer some of the things that maybe we had thought we had to leave behind for mm. people to revisit. And also to revisit some of the things you think you have to keep taking and say, okay, I'm going to leave those. We don't need that anymore. It doesn't help
1: me. Yeah. I mean, with anything, I, that, that works with anything. In order for me to have a relationship with my mother, for example, mm. my mother is homophobic and my mother is flawed i love her i want a relationship with her and i don't want her to be homophobic and i feel like i i can change that i can help us have a relationship but i also have to be willing to forgive her every single time we have a conversation mm. and i have to walk into every single encounter with her with forgiveness in my heart otherwise i won't be able to have a relationship with my mother I try to think about that with anything, with Catholicism, right? With right. The my, with my interactions with other people.
0: Wow, that's that's beautiful, honestly. And and you know when you were talking about your mother's mother, I was thinking, what pain and suffering she must have had inside of her to behave that way, yeah, you know, with her own grandchildren. You know what messages she internalized probably from her parents and from the time that she grew up in that told her that half of her grandchildren were were worthless because of yeah. their you know their their hair their skin color and I think when we can think that way, which is of course not easy to do it's that's a form of forgiveness, and you're just you you're just forgiving people again and
1: again i when she died. I thought about this a lot and it was that that she lived her entire life, she was unhappy. Her entire life she was miserable. Right. That her hate and her racism hurt her more than it hurt any of us. Mm-hmm. It was definitely hurtful to me and to my sister, and my cousins. But I feel like it didn't destroy us. We're right. alive and happy. But it literally destroyed her. It destroyed her life and it made her a very unhappy person. And so all I can do is forgive because I I, I don't think she lived a joyful day in her life. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, the way she's
0: described in your writing, it doesn't seem like it either. I think that's why I had that. And we should, in, in some ways, having that empathy and that forgiveness for people like that is, yeah, it, it serves you probably more than it serves them, <laughs> but it's it's yeah. important either way. Shakira, I really could talk to you about a hundred more things. You, we didn't even get into my notes here on cultural trauma and intergenerational trauma. So uh, like I said, hopefully you'll come back again down the line. I, I'm really grateful we got this time to speak. It flew by. No joke. <laughs> you. It thank flew you by. So
1: I'd happy to be
0: back. <laughs> great. Thank you. And congratulations on your your memoir, Ordinary Girls. And I'm going to continue to watch your trajectory, which is just going up and up and all the words you're receiving and the praise well-deserved. So congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a quick reminder that you can sign up for my newsletter and just get a little tidbit emails for me here and there at Podcast.com. Please DM me on Instagram. Again, you can just search Dolores Alfieri and I will pop up as Dolores underscore Alfieri underscore Toronto. Or you can email me the old fashioned way at Dolores at com. And please just send me your thoughts your show ideas, your feedback. I love to hear from you guys. It lets me know that you're out there and it makes me feel like we're actually having a conversation uh, with one another. Here's to knowing your roots and cultivating a beautiful life from their power.